Well, good morning, and uh, like Shannon said, happy Valentine's Day. Glad that you are uh, with us this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in uh, a study in the book of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 7. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, uh, we're going to put the text on the screen. We do that so you can follow along. Um, also, there's a great app. YouVersion has a Bible app that you can use. Uh, and I believe if you have the Redemption Gilbert app, uh, there's a way for you to follow along in the scripture as well, too. But we're in John chapter 7 this morning. I have a little bit of a confession to make. And if you know me, it's not really much of a confession. It's just kind of news. But I am an easily distracted person. And... Uh, Someone say amen to that. Corey said amen, uh, and uh, and and this has been a particularly kind of just distracting kind of season for me. But God was very uh, kind to me last week during communion. I got to sit through the service and while Jeremy was doing communion. I got to actually sit with my uh, oldest daughter at the eleven o'clock service, and uh, she goes at nine thirty. She goes to ignite, which is the fifth and sixth grade environment. But she asked if she could actually come to church at the eleven because she's just like such a great kid like that. My other two are like boring, but uh, she was like, no, I'd actually like to go to church. So we got to sit together, and as we were just kind of taking the bread and cup together, God just really, I feel like brought like a real moment of grace and clarity and kindness to me in what Shannon was just talking about, this idea of, of a resurrected life, meaning like a life that has moved from death to life which is a big deal. Maybe just to me, but it's, that feels like a really big deal. But to move from death to life, and I was talking to my friend uh, Tyler about that, and just like this whole idea of, of resurrection. And it can become kind of just a word that we throw around at church, and maybe it kind of loses some of uh, what it really is, and maybe it loses some of its steam because it just becomes kind of a word that goes in a category of like church words, but like this idea of resurrection. And so for me, uh, what I think it really like helped me start to do is start to pray like who in my life that I know of in this season, as we are kind of heading towards Easter where we celebrate resurrection, who in my life would I want to see move from death to life? Like, who do I know that's spiritually dead? And I'd love to see God just breathe new life into them. And so I want to I'm going to, maybe, maybe this is just for me to get this off my chest, but in which case, I'm sorry if you're watching online, if you're in a room, but, but maybe, maybe God just stirs us up at as, as a church to really have us focus on those that he's brought into our life that are spiritually dead. Um, and I don't know, we, we just pray that God would use us in some way um, as, as uh, he's bringing and breathing life and resurrecting life, so... Something to think about it. You don't seem very excited, but I think that could be really cool if, uh, if we just saw a whole lot of people uh, get saved. I don't know. I think that'd be great. There you go. You guys with me? Okay. That'd be, that would be great uh, for Easter. All right, John chapter 7. Let's, uh, let's read this. Uh, I'm gonna, it's a big section. There's 24 verses here I'm going to read, and then we'll just kind of work through it. So John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. This becomes a pretty consistent theme in the life of Jesus through the rest of the book. Um, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you are doing these things. Show yourself to the world. 
Then John tells us, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. But others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Verse 20, you're a demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. All right, let's pray. Just ask God to help us uh, as we try to understand this passage of Scripture. Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us. God, you tell us very clearly that you create these days that we'd rejoice and be glad in it. And God, we have so much to be glad in. We have so much to rejoice this morning that we can freely gather uh, like this or online. God, that we have access to your word. God, that we can open it and read it and study it. Um, God, that we have uh, such talented uh, leaders, God, who lead us in, in singing and lead us in these times of, of, of worship together. God, that we got to come around your table this morning and, God, be reminded once again of who you are and what you've done for us. God, we have so much to be thankful for. And, God, right now, um, we are asking very specifically and very particularly, God, for your help. We do not rest in... Um, in human ability or human understanding or human wisdom. God, I'm asking you to do something supernatural in this moment. And for that, we need you, Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and move freely in this time and in this place, in our hearts and our minds? Would you bring illumination that we would be able to see and God, that we'd be able to hear? We need you. And I want to ask that you uh, would just pray that very specific prayer right now, that God would speak to you, uh, and that you'd be able to clearly hear from God, that he would say something just very specific, very particular to you, but that all the noise, all the distractions, all the kind of outside stuff that's swirling around, that God would silence that, and that he would just speak loud and clear to you through his Holy Spirit right now. Would you just pray that? Father, in this time, um, I'm just praying for mercy. I'm praying for 
um, very specific gift of, of preaching right now. So Holy Spirit, would you cover me and fill me? Um, God, guide us in a way that stirs up our heart, stirs up our affection for more of you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, my family is kind of late to the game, um, comparatively, relatively, uh, but we have entered the world of youth sports uh, just like a couple months ago, particularly with uh, rec soccer. So my kids, I got two girls and a boy, 11, 9, and 7. They're all playing Gilbert Youth Rec Soccer, and the emphasis is on rec. Like, they barely keep score uh, in these in these leagues. And I did not uh, play soccer. I actually, I wrestled in high school. I played like a little bit of intramural soccer in college with the, my buddies from the surf team, but it was, I'm not a soccer player. Um, but that never stops me um, from yelling instruction onto the field uh, when my kids are playing. Now, I'm not their coach. They actually have coaches who've played at a collegiate level. Like they know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. Um, I'm not the coach, but I like to yell out instruction to them. Um, and man, my kids, I've kind of discovered, do not listen to me at all. Um, and it's probably because when their coach gives instruction to them, it's, it's very tactical. It actually makes sense uh, it's to, in, in terms of what's going on in the game. My instruction is like, hey, hey, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball, run to the ball, hey, the ball, go get it, get it. Hey, over there, hey, Vera, come this way, come this way. What are you doing? Pay attention, heads up, look at That's how my instruction sounds. And I've noticed my kids' body language, too, when their coach will talk to them, they will do something very particular. They will actually turn and acknowledge the coach uh, and listen to what they do. And then their body will actually do what the coach just told them to do. When I yell at them, um, it has a very different kind of reaction in their physical body. It's kind of like if you've ever had something like swarming around, like buzzing you, uh, and you're like, you kind of know what's there, but you don't want to pay attention to it. Like, a, that's kind of what my kids, I'll yell something and they kind of, they kind of turn their head a little bit, but it's more just like, please get out of my ear. The point is, <laughs> um, outside influences affect the way that we think about things and it shows up in the way uh, that we show up in the world. Let me say it a different way. Behind our behavior is a voice. We hear before we do. Uh, you don't have to be a Bible person, a church person, you're a Christian just to know this. There are voices in our lives, outside influences over our lives that shape the way we think about the world and shape the way that we behave in the world or act or move or show up in the world. And the Bible actually talks about this in, in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. They're given a way to live. God gives them instruction. He gives them a way that he has for them to live their, their lives. But that story and ultimately our story is interrupted by another voice. In Genesis, we see the voice of the deceiver enters in. Adam and Eve listen to that voice. And when God comes to find Adam and Eve who are hiding in their shame, one of the first things that God says to them is, who told you? In other words, whose voice did you listen to? And one of the most important questions for us to be paying attention to is which voice or whose voice am I listening to in my life? Or maybe a better way to say that, of, of all the voices that are swirling around, and there's a lot that's swirling around, 
which one is the loudest in my life. And as we pay attention to the life of Jesus, especially in this chapter, and then the chapters to come in the book of John, we're going to see him surrounded by different voices. And he's going to show us by the way that he lives his life, which voices are the most important to him. Um, when we bomb in on Jesus here in chapter 7, we, we find him in a season where his ministry is actually not going so great. In chapter 6, if you remember, there was this miraculous feeding, and Jesus had all these people who were following him, and he was a trending topic in society, but then he begins to preach. And if you were here last week, you heard Luke preach about this. His message is very hard. It's very hard, and a lot of people are like, we can't take this teaching we're out. We thought there was just going to be more bread, but we're leaving. And from here on in, in his story, we're going to see his life as the cycle of threats and rejection. And as his life goes on, the threats become more violent and the rejections become more personal. John's even said this in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says the Jews want to kill him. In verse 13, it's reiterated again. In verse 19, Jesus just calls him out. He just says, you want to kill me. And there's this pattern that continues and compounds in the life of Christ until he's finally tortured and crucified. And not just that, but the rejection gets more and more personal. If, if you look at those who've rejected Jesus in the book of John, it starts with these, these Jewish authorities, and then the crowds, just the group of people, and then the, the, the disciples or the followers, his brothers will reject him. So if you, Jesus knows what it's like to have family reject him. And then there's a moment with Judas, who's one of the 12. And then the 10 in the garden, they split. And then Peter, one of his best allies, one of his best friends, closest to him, denies him three times. And on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's important because I think one of the mistakes that we can make when we're reading about Jesus is that we can disconnect our own empathy from him, meaning we don't acknowledge how this rejection would have affected him. Jesus is fully God and fully human, but his divinity never protects him from the painful parts of what it means to be a human. And rejection is painful. Threats on your life are disruptive and scary. How, how many of you right now, you can think of at least one person that you know of who's upset with you? Don't look at them right now. It's Valentine's Day. <laughs> But how does that make you feel? Like just the, the anxiety of just like one person. It's, it's uncomfortable at best, but it's disorienting. It's disruptive. So imagine what the personal life of Jesus is looking like right now, is feeling around. There's all this that's swirling around him. And the voices start telling him what he should do and how he should live. Again, I don't want us to read the Bible. I don't want us to read the gospel account of the life of Jesus disconnected from the reality of what he's actually going through. But you've got this Jesus and he's here and the voices are creeping in and they're saying, look, there's an easier way out. His brothers are saying, look, there's a way that maybe it compromises the mission, but it's an easier way out. It would actually make your life more enjoyable, Jesus, if you just would listen to us. And it's the kind of voices that we encounter all the time. There's voices in your vocation that are pushing you towards compromise, in your marriages, in your relationships, with your finances, even in your life with God, there's a voice that's pushing you towards compromise. Because it feels like a path of least resistance. And that's what Jesus is under right here. 
But Jesus doesn't listen to those voices because the loudest and most important voice in his life is the voice of the Father. We're going to see that as we move further and further along in this book. But we do, as we look closer, Jesus have to ask that question of our own lives. What voice is the loudest in my life? What voice is the most important in my life? And I want us to use that frame as we just look through this passage real quick together. In verse uh, chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 2, uh, again, says this, But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples, your followers there, may see your works that you do. They're in like damage, damage control mode here, his brothers. No one who wants to become a public figure, nobody who wants to become famous, nobody who wants to be an influencer, Jesus, does this stuff in secret. And since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, and then John gives us a clue there, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So they're, they're at the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is one of the most celebrated festivals in Jewish life. So the Passover might be the one that we're the most familiar with if you've been in church in any level of time, or just that's maybe one that you've just kind of heard about in the Hebrew culture, Passover, but really it was the Feast of Booths that kind of took over culture. They are celebrating the fact that God provided for his people in the wilderness. So if you look back at the Exodus story, God does these miraculous things to care for the nation of Israel, to care for his people, and how they celebrated was by, they would actually go back into the wilderness, and they would build these booths or tents, and they would set up like these kind of like campsites, and they would celebrate for weeks. It was like tailgating for God. One uh, pastor in Redemption said it, it was like a Hebrew country thunder, which probably works better out at Gateway than here, but I thought I'd, I'd try it. So everyone is in Jerusalem to celebrate, but Jesus is in Galilee, and as his brothers are trying to rebuild his brand, they're like, look, your popularity has taken a hit, but we can fix this. We just need you to do some more miracles. The bread thing was great. You could do that again. That seemed to get a lot of traction. Um, but we want you to go where everybody is and do some more of that stuff. We got to get you out of Galilee. It'd be like if there was like a huge party in downtown Phoenix and Jesus is hanging out in Florence. Now that, I, that idea or that might not sound like... Uh, that might sound kind of like a harmless thing to suggest. Like, why is that such a bad idea? Okay, Jesus, maybe he should go to where the people are. That seems like a more successful way to do ministry. But John lets us in on a little clue. He says, his brothers don't actually believe in him. And, and what's happened is Jesus, he's already done the miracles. And people did love that. But when Jesus starts to explain who he actually is and what life with him was like, that we need his body and we need his blood, people, they don't want that part of Jesus. So what the brothers are saying to Jesus, just give the people what they want. More miracles, less sermon. Tone down all this Messiah stuff and bend your agenda around the will of the people, not the will of your father. And here's what's being revealed with his brothers. You only want Jesus to stop acting like God if you don't believe that he's actually God. 
Let me speak real quick just to their unbelief, because there's an, there's an unbelief that people have who've never heard of Jesus, or they're just unfamiliar. And that might be you here in the room, or you here watching. That, like, you just, you've never heard these stories. You, you don't know where the books of the Bible are in, in the Bible when we open it up. You don't, you don't know these songs. You don't know why people are raising your hand. You don't know why we do the thing with the cup and the bread. You, don't know, you just don't know, because you're just not familiar. You didn't grow up with it. And I love, I love that. I love people who are here like that, just trying to get closer and trying to figure out. I think that's, that's awesome. But I don't think that's them. I think because there's an unbelief that is in close proximity to Jesus, but your heart is far from him. And you see, that unbelief has a, a type of fruit that's associated with it. And the fruit of that unbelief is insecurity and pride. Meaning, I'll wait on the fringe to see what everybody else does before I'll follow Jesus. The, the brothers assume that because all the crowds left and, and Jesus really isn't quite as popular as he once was, that he must not be who he says he is. But the reality is, is that Jesus, who Jesus is and what he does is not contingent on how people respond to him. And really, what is even more sad is that what the brothers are experiencing here, what the brothers, the way that the brothers are teaching Jesus, is something that actually happens in our culture as well. You see, we don't want to follow a savior that goes to the least, the last, and the lost, or be part of a ministry on the margins, because that makes us feel marginal. Success in our culture is always defined by more, not less more people, more influence, more money, just, just more. But what Jesus is doing here is he refuses to allow his, his life and his ministry to be held captive to cultural ideals and opinions. And it could be why the church in America has experienced such a shift in this past year. It could just be like that God is exposing and winnowing out some of the insecurity and belief in crowded churches and in crowded church-going culture, that God is allowing the church to return to the margins so that the insincere might disappear and so that the sincere, radical, and courageous followers of Jesus who'd rather be with him in the fringes than in the crowd might rise up to proclaim the gospel and walk in love. Could be. That's what we're seeing God do. And if you look at these brothers, there's kind of an arrogance that's attached to them. Because Jesus is teaching unlike anybody else who's ever taught. He's already performing signs and wonders. He's got a pretty miraculous birth story that I'm sure his brothers would have been familiar with. But these brothers are like, okay, listen, it's not really working for you. It's not really going so well. Can I give you a couple tips on how to have a successful ministry? Verse 6 says this, therefore Jesus said, my time is not yet here for you. Any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. It might not kind of feel like it, but that's kind of a little bit of a stab at his brothers there. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. Now, here's what John's telling us that the word world in John's writings has different meanings because we've already seen John will write things like God so loved the world. Uh, and in the other John's writings, he writes things like don't love the world or the things in it. So if you're kind of paying attention, you're like, well, okay, well, which one is it, John? Well, one, 
way is that God made uh, this world that he loves and he made it good and it still has goodness in it, which is why we say things like all of life is all for Jesus, uh, meaning that it all matters, like vocation matters, the art matters. Like there are things like the world matters because Jesus is Lord over all of it. The scripture tells us that he's actually reconciling all things to himself. He's given us to this ministry of reconciliation. And so even though creation is marred by sin, um, God delights in it still. The other way that world is used is to talk about the spirit or the values or the system or the pattern, Paul will talk about, um, of the, uh, that runs the world and that's behind the world. And that's what Jesus has in mind here, which is why he says to his brothers, look, the world can't hate you because you're too much like it. When the world sees you, it sees a reflection of itself. And Jesus is saying, the world doesn't have that response to me. In fact, it hates me because I testify against it, because I speak against the evil things in the world. This is why people have an issue with the Bible. This is why people have an issue with Jesus. Because what he's saying is, I'm against the world. I'm against its system, its broken ways, its false promises, all the ways that it builds up of what it can deliver only to kill and to steal and destroy. The world hates me because I'm telling them how to live their lives. And one of the biggest challenges for the church today and in our not-too-distant future church, in fact, I think it's here already, but is going to be around this reality of love. Not so much that I think the church is going to struggle to love well, although it might, but the fact that the definition of love will come from culture and not from the Scripture. And here's what I mean by that. The cultural definition of love is an acceptance without correction. It's a love that is only love if it makes no demands on that which is love. So to correct or oppose or disagree with something in someone's life is labeled as hatred. It's unloving to tell people what to believe or how to act. That's the cultural definition of love. It would be like this. Um, If you're talking to somebody about Jesus and how they should believe in him, and I walk up on your conversation and I say, look, you can't t- tell people what they, what they should or shouldn't believe. And you look at me and say, well, I don't believe that. And I say, well, you should. I just did to you the thing that I said that you couldn't do. So keep your beliefs to yourself, which is something we hear all the time. Keep your beliefs to yourself is a belief that I'm not keeping to myself. And what Jesus is saying is that I came to testify against the world. He holds strong beliefs and strong convictions, and he does not compromise. And people would say, well, that, means, that must mean that Jesus is intolerant or he's closed-minded, and there are some people who think so. But if you actually look at the life of Jesus, love never comes out of his life in that way. It never comes out as cold judgmentalism. He's not a moral bully. He's against the world for the world. 
Let me explain this. He's against the world for the sake of the world. He's against the evil demonic systems of darkness that steal and kill and destroy. And he confronts the world so that those who are captive to it might be set free. I can explain it this way. Sometimes I am against my kids for my kids. Sometimes I'm against uh, what they want to eat or what they want to watch or what they, who they want to hang out with because I'm ultimately for my kids. I'm against some of what they want because I am for what's best for them. That's what Jesus is doing here. This idea of against the world for the sake of the world is not original with me. There's a pastor named Tim Keller. He, write, he says it this way. He says, Jesus is against the world for the world, to which some people respond by being attracted to him and some repelled by it. They're attracted to him because of a beautiful reality in the life of Jesus that he preaches a unique way of living. Have you ever shared with somebody uh, a way of living that comes straight from the Bible? Maybe you didn't share that it was straight from the Bible, but it's a way of living that comes straight from the Bible, and it resonates with someone who doesn't believe the Bible or who doesn't believe in Jesus. Because there's the wisdom of God that's laid out, and when a human hears that, there's something in them that says, yeah, that feels like that's the way I'm actually designed to live. It feels like that's the way relationships are actually supposed to work. It feels like that's the way anxiety should actually be dealt with. There's a beautiful reality to this unique way of living that Jesus is preaching, a standard of holiness that is higher than any other teacher and some of the most unholy people in society love being around him. He's against the world for the world. If you look closely at the person of Jesus, who are the people that gravitate towards him? Tax collectors, these dredges of society, sinners, prostitutes, all flock to Jesus. They love being in his presence. People who have been held captive by the empty promises of the world find freedom in Jesus because he's truth and grace. And others hate him because of it. And the temptation for us as a church is to tone down the truth, to tone down the message that causes tension or friction and to just kind of dazzle people with the show. And Jesus won't go for it and neither will we. And it gets pretty messy for Jesus. And it'll get pretty messy for us if we're faithful to show up in the world like he does. And I'm okay with that because that's actually when it gets pretty fun. But when the voice of the Father is louder than the other voices, then the love of the Father is more deeply known and experienced and the mission of the Father becomes more and more clear. We're gonna see as we walk alongside Jesus in the chapters to come that he just becomes more and more and more crystal clear on who he is and what he's gonna do. And that's what we're gonna see in Jesus. He knows he came to extend love even if he is rejected and even if he is misunderstood and even if he is hated. We see that Jesus is content to be obedient and alone rather than be adored and unfaithful. And one voice says, go with the world and be accepted. And the other one says, go against the world for the sake of the world and be hated and rejected. And the question that we have to ask, the question that I have to ask myself and you do is, which voice do you listen to? 
And Jesus doesn't model for us a life that is cold or mean or judgmental. In fact, the scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads to a life that is turned around. In fact, if you want to read ahead to chapter 8, you're going to see this illustrated, one of my favorite stories in the scripture, this beautiful modeling of Jesus and his kindness. And so if it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, then the coldness of Christians is actually counterintuitive to the mission of God. Again, Keller says this. He says, you'll be both attractive and repelled as a Christian. And if you are always repelled and never attractive, it doesn't mean that you are more like Jesus. It probably just means that you are obnoxious. (laughs) And he says, but if you're always attractive and never repelled, it may mean that you're a coward. The voice of God by the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in my life is the ongoing process of replacing the voice of the world, replacing the values of the world in my mind and in my heart with the values of God into my heart and into my mind so that the world around me changes and so that I change when I show up in the world. And so much for me, when I look back at anxiety and angst in my life, I can always trace it back to the voice that said, just do what the crowd wants you to do. Just do the thing that the world accepts. Because I wasn't made for that. And so in those moments where I follow that voice, in those moments where I follow the voice of the world, they always lead to my places of deepest regret, my places of deepest angst, my places of deepest anxiety. Why? Because I was not created to walk and to listen and to follow that voice. And Jesus knows that. And his value is not found in the voice of the fans, but in the voice of the Father who says, I love you. I'm well pleased in you. Like a verse um, 14, we're just about done here. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? So Jesus, he's just teaching the scriptures, just teaching there. And people are just blown away. Like, how does he have such a grasp of the information without formal training? And the reason is that Jesus can teach the way that he does because of the time that he spent in the scriptures. When his identity is challenged in the wilderness by Satan, he responds with scripture. It's just in him. He's like a sponge. When you'd squeeze it, the scripture would come out of him. He learned the voice of God through the word of God, which is why at this church, that's what we preach out of is the word of God. And why we preach through books of the Bible, because if you want to follow the voice of God, you need to listen to the word of God and have it in you. Jesus knows that. In the next section, Jesus is teaching. There's all kinds of just kind of pushback on him. Look at verse 16. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do, do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who speaks, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? So Jesus runs into what a lot of preachers run into. Um, which is a crowd that says, I don't really want to listen to the message. I'm trying to kind of discredit it uh, by discrediting the messenger. 
I don't know if you've ever done this, you've ever been sitting and you're listening to someone uh, like me who's doing something like this and you're trying to find all kinds of reasons wrong with the person who's up here so you don't have to listen to it. This might be more applicable. Um, Have you ever had uh, your spouse, if you're married, come to you with a particular attitude or behavior or way of being uh, that that you have and they're coming to you to bring it to your attention. They're coming to you in a way to kind of confront you with it. it. Uh, And when they bring that thing to you, you immediately begin to deflect back on them why you shouldn't listen to what they brought for you because of a behavior or attitude or way of being that they have. Me neither. I've just I've heard that that can happen <clears throat> in marriages. It's a rumor I've heard, but that's what happens. Somebody brings something to us, and we try to discredit the message. That's what's happening to Jesus here. It's easier to discount or to discredit the messenger than it is to humble ourselves to the truth. And they get stuck on, well, what is what is this going to cost me? What's this going to cost me? That's where they're ultimately getting bogged down. Jesus is saying, look, it's not that you care about the law. It's that you're trying to protect your own self-glory, your own, your own self-interest. I'm going to discredit the messenger so that I don't have to humble myself to the message. And we'll close with this in verse 17. It says this, Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you want to know what's true, you have to believe that it's true. If you want to believe that my message is true, you have to believe that I am true. And and that seems, at least humanly, naturally, kind of counterintuitive. Which is why belief in Jesus or faith is, is supernatural. That's why when I do something like this, there's really not a ton of pressure because I'm asking God to do something that only God can do. I'm asking God to supernaturally supply a faith or a confidence in him. It's a faith that he initiates and he provides and he sustains that a trust in him and a trust in his word. And you might be hearing that and you're like, okay, so what is Christianity? Just blind faith? It's just a thoughtless faith? So I just kind of just have to suck it up and believe? Not quite. Um, you see, everyone, regardless of your belief, or even of what you deem as non-belief, you've chosen a voice in your life uh, that you refuse to question. A, a, a voice uh, that you won't question, but it's a voice by which you question all other voices. And that decision, declaring that voice, declaring that authority to guide your life is an act of faith, even if you're not a religious person. You see, every set of beliefs can be reduced to faith in something. Even if you say, I'm not a person of faith, I apply reason to everything. I I question everything. Okay, well, that means that you are the voice, that you are the authority, And it means that your faith is in you. You you see, if I am my own ultimate authority, well, then that means that I'm only going to serve my own desires as primary. And I'll always think of the ways that I can get what I want. And if my voice is the only voice that I listen to, it means I worship myself, which Jesus is saying here is seeking your own glory. And when Jesus shows up, he offers 
an alternate way of living. He offers a more true way of living. He says, seek the voice of God. Submit to his leading. And it doesn't mean that you can't have questions. It means that I ultimately submit to the question that God asks me. Do you believe by faith that my voice is the most true voice? This is what Jesus is asking. This is what Jesus is presenting. It's the starting point and sustaining power of life with God. The scripture says the fear of the Lord or the reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom. And every day of our lives, we make decisions on whether or not the voice of God will direct our steps. Our faithfulness is not so much do we understand what to do, but our faithfulness is will we in humility submit to the voice of God and what he has for us? And Jesus, especially as we work through the rest of this book, is going to show us what that looks like in our lives. And he's not just the model for us. He's the means. He's the way that we actually get there. The love, the grace, the mercy, his death and resurrection. That is the way through for the life of the Jesus follower. So church, let's walk in that. Let's listen to the voice of God above all other voices for the sake of the world and the fame of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. God, we thank you for this time that you've given us together. God, we thank you for your word. And God, my prayer is this, and it may sound simple. Um, and God, I hope and I pray that for us this week, it is simple. God, to hear your voice above all other voices. And God, to submit and obey your voice above all other voices. And so God, I pray that for me and for us as a church, God, that there would be a decreasing of our own agenda. There would be a decreasing of our own glory, God, so that you might increase more and more and more. And so that those who are in our lives, God, who are far from you might be filled with life in Christ, God, because they see what it looks like to submit to your voice and your will in the life that you have for us. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. We will see you next Sunday.